Welcome to Engaging the Experts, a series of interviews with pharmacy practitioners and educators on cutting-edge topics. In this interview, William Zelmer talks with John Petrich and Michael Story regarding gene replacement and gene-modifying therapies. This installment is produced by ASHP Advantage and supported by Avexis Incorporated, a Novartis company. This is William Zelmer for the ASHP program, Engaging the Experts. I'm speaking with John Petrich and Michael Story, who presented a session on gene therapy at the 2018 ASHP Major Clinical Meeting. John is Investigational Drug Service Manager at Cleveland Clinic, and Mike is Medication Use and Formulary Coordinator at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. Mike, let's begin with you. In your mid-year symposium, you defined gene therapy as any therapy that acts on or modifies a gene for a therapeutic benefit. And you made it clear that this definition encompasses both gene-modifying therapy and gene-replacement therapy. To build a foundation for our discussion, give us a brief, high-level description of the treatment process in each of these two types of gene therapy. All right. Yeah, I can definitely do that. I think that we're hearing the word gene therapy used in many contexts. And so I think that whenever we use the term gene therapy, we need to be clear about what it is that we're talking about. And so I think one thing that we're hearing a lot of the word gene therapy used is with cellular um, gene therapy. And this is kind of a ex vivo gene therapy where cells are removed, modified, and reinfused. That is, there's a couple of commercial products available. There will probably be more in the future. Also, there's there's viral vector gene replacement therapy, and th- these are products that we're really just seeing come to market right now. There's one commercially available product currently, and there's uh, several that we expect will be approved over the next few years. There's also some other products that kind of get lumped into gene therapy, and they're really what I call gene actors, um, such as antisense oligonucleotides or double-stranded RNA. And there you're not actually making a true genetic change to a cell, but you're using some something to actually act on the genes and really um, to cause a protein to be produced or not produced. And so there's a, there's a lot of different things. And I think that anytime we're using the word gene therapy, we want to make sure we're clear about what it is we're actually talking about. Okay, well, that's very helpful. Mike, is it accurate to say that gene therapy is focused on rare diseases? Yeah, um, I think that a lot of gene therapy really is for rare diseases. So the National Organization for Rare Diseases defines that as any disease with less than 200,000 patients in the United States. That's also how the Orphan Drug Act defines rare. But um, the basis of monogenic diseases is that they tend to be rare. But we do expect that we will see possibly utilization in more common diseases in the future as we learn more about genomics in general. You know, there's going to be some limitations on that. One of the things that makes it somewhat maybe more amenable to rare disease is that we do expect a really significant cost. And so knowing that there's a high cost, even just for manufacturing of these products, the ability to use it in much more common diseases may become a much more significant burden to the health system than something that's used in much more rare diseases. And so there's an ongoing evolution, but I think that right now, much of the research is really focused in the rare disease space. Okay. John, uh, you have something to add? Yes, I, I agree with Mike. While there are 
plenty of gene therapies targeting rare diseases, uh, we're starting to see momentum building for more prevalent conditions as well. Uh, for example, while there are products in advanced development for a disease like spinal muscular atrophy, which might occur in one in 10,000 live births, earlier stage development is underway for gene therapies for Alzheimer's disease, which occurs in about one in 10 adults over the age 65. Mm -hmm. John, uh, could you comment on the general biosafety considerations in the health system environment for the two types of gene therapy, gene modifying and gene replacement? Yes, the biosafety conditions in the patient care environment will depend on the product. Telemagene is prepared in the pharmacy using biosafety level two precautions since it contains the HSV vector, but it is administered directly into a lesion in the clinic. So in this case, a spill kit must accompany the gene therapy from the pharmacy to the clinic. So help me understand, if a hospital pharmacy is fully compliant with requirements for sterile compounding and for handling hazardous substances, what more, if anything, will need to be done for biosafety related to gene therapies? John? Uh, full compliance, Bill, with hazardous drug handling will go a long way toward managing biosafety with gene therapies, no question. The additional steps to consider with gene therapies are, uh, one, assessing the risk of each individual product, classifying it and assigning it a path toward biosafety. It is our view that not all gene therapies are, are hazardous. And number two, assess your infrastructure. Number three, create some detailed SOPs around handling the products from the uh, various biosafety levels. And finally, four, educating your staff and patients. It's my role to fill that education gap resulting from adding and changing roles uh, and responsibilities within the institution. And, and we also believe that the training should be specific for, for each group to include nurses, physicians, pharmacists. And then caregiver education. Pharmacists have a role in educating patients and the caregivers about the administration issues, uh, waste handling, and spills. Okay. Well, that's very helpful. Mike, let me uh, turn back to you. Uh, what is your sense of the number of gene therapy products that will be marketed over the next five to ten years? Yeah, so we've seen a few over the last couple of years, but um, we're really starting to see some momentum for several others. Um, back in June of 2018, Scott Gottlieb, the commissioner of the FDA, said at uh, the Biotechnology Innovation Organization's um, international convention that he expects 40 gene therapies, 4-0 gene therapies, to be approved by 2022. There's a lot of different products that are in human trials right now. Overall, I expect several viral vector gene therapies to be approved, as well as a few uh, cellular therapies as well. We do see, you know, this discussion about CRISPR on the horizon, and I think that's probably still at least five or more years out from um, FDA registration as we're really only starting to see human trials. But really, um, you know, in terms of some of these viral vector gene therapies for monogenic diseases and some of the cellular therapies that we're seeing used in oncology and potentially other settings, um, we're really, I think, expecting several of these products over the next couple of years. And so, you know, something that I think has been a, a much more limited uh, role in many of our health systems and or maybe not at all in many uh, may, may evolve over the next few years. Well, certainly hospitals that have been involved in clinical trials of these products will also be prepared to handle them after they are commercialized. But what about other hospitals? 
Mike, uh, to what extent do you think non-academic health centers will be involved in gene therapies? Yeah, um, so I, I do think that this will largely start in academic medical centers or freestanding pediatric hospitals, but I do think that we'll eventually see this expand. Rare diseases are, are currently largely managed at tertiary referral centers, um, like academic medical centers, but I do think there's a few dynamics that could cause that to change over time. So one thing I think that could change is that you may see that decentralization of care for those diseases as the intensity of care required for those patients declines because of gene therapy. So while you may have centralized care because you know patients often require ventilator support and wheelchairs and other things for various disabilities, if they no longer have such significant needs, that may be something that is managed closer to their home. I also think that there's products with time sensitivity. For example, if a product is being used for a progressive um, neurodegenerative disease, time is of the essence. And so getting a patient to an academic medical center may not always be a feasible option. And so I can envision some referral centers that are not necessarily trial sites looking to become commercial sites because ultimately to provide health equity in their community, they need to be able to provide that. So if you have a neonate who's born in you, in your area and uh, they don't have the means to travel to you know, a quaternary referral center, the ability to get that in, in their own community would be uh, very important. The other side of that coin is that I do think it's possible that we'll see centers of excellence develop. So you may see that um, these may be defined by manufacturers, these may be defined by payers, this may be defined by organization, an organization's ability to handle the complexity of these therapies. For a lot of you know, smaller community hospitals, cost might be a major hurdle. And so you know, while large academic medical centers may be dealing with drug budgets in the tens or hundreds of millions of dollars each year, you know, and so several hundred thousand or even a multi-million dollar impact from gene therapy is something that they can readily absorb. If you're a community hospital with a three to five million dollar drug budget, the idea of buying a two million dollar gene therapy may be something that's somewhat out of reach. And the, the the risk tolerance issue may also cause some non-AMCs to to balk at actually implementing these therapies. John, what would you add? Uh, to piggyback onto what Mike said about non-academic health centers, I think they will have to focus on their infrastructure if they want to be involved in gene therapies. Uh, for example, a facility without a dedicated hood and a negative pressure room might not be able to manage a product uh, that requires biosafety level two precautions. Yeah. Mike, in your view, is it a given that FDA-approved gene therapies will usually be acquired and handled by the hospital pharmacy department rather than by some type of hospital laboratory or medical specialty department? Yeah, so I think we're seeing um, this evolve and actually different actions being taken by both different hospitals and with different types of products. And so um, if you look across the board nationally, the large majority of centers are handling cellular gene therapies um, through their cell labs or through blood banks or other um, parts of their hospital. Um, in fact, our, our hospital is actually one of very few that are handling it in the pharmacy. And I, I would suggest that that is not necessarily because of a um, pressure from pharmacy, but rather because of other organizational demands around that um, unique to our organization. 
But um, I think that as we look at some of the other gene therapies that are coming um, with like viral vectors, for example, where there isn't already some sort of um, existing infrastructure in other parts of the hospital that may support that, I think the answer is that pharmacy will be the place that will be managing these. I think there's some other really important things too. Um, you know, the, the financials I think are a really important thing. I do hear from different service lines, and I hear this at our hospital, but I hear this in talking to others across the country as well, that you have different service lines who are say, seeing these large numbers and saying, well, we want to capture that because it will be beneficial to our department at the hospital, or, you know, these are our patients, we want the benefit and the credit. Um, but I don't think that that always fully creates understanding around the financial risk, the uh, handling, and ultimately the um, revenue cycle implications that pharmacy is generally much more competent to handle in many of our institutions than you'll find, you know, in service line administration leadership, you know, as it relates to drugs and other things that are billed like drugs. And so I think there's a variety of different things that will ultimately lead to this being managed through pharmacy. Another thing is, is that these are approved like drugs through the FDA. And what that can mean is that they may have REMS programs. Many of the cellular therapy products, for example, have REMS programs. Um, at our institution, REMS program management is centralized inside of our pharmacy department. And so that is something that from the very beginning, as we looked at cellular therapy, um, we were very um, assertive in saying REMS management is our expertise and our medication safety officer is the point of contact for that. And that's, I think, an important thing that people need to be thinking about in terms of where does that expertise live? And I think the expertise should and does live in the pharmacy department at our hospitals. Yeah, you make good points. Uh, John, anything you would add? I would agree with Mike that um, most institutions do not manage the cellular therapies in the pharmacy. However, I think it is reasonable to expect the pharmacies to manage all other non-cellular gene therapies. Okay. Well, I'd like to ask uh, each of you uh, the following question, and John, let's start with you with your response. Could you comment briefly on how you personally became involved in gene therapy issues in pharmacy practice? Uh, yes. As a manager of our investigational drug service here, about 12 years ago, I was involved in my first two clinical trials involving gene therapy, simultaneously involving vascular endothelial growth factor, if I recall. And uh, one incorporated adenovirus as its vector, and the other incorporated a non-viable plasmin as its vector. And that's when the distinctions in product handling and developing SOPs and training became important to me and, and my institution. I see. Mike, what is your journey in this regard? Yeah, so I would say my journey is a bit different than John's in terms of um, I've kind of come at this more from the commercial side and in, and in a more anticipatory manner for things in the future versus John being involved from early in the, in the clinical trial stages. And so I came to Nationwide Children's Hospital in 2012, shortly after finishing my HSPA pharmacy residency at OSU across town. You know, when I came here, there was this freezer in the back of the pharmacy that had the sign on it that said, you know, gene therapy and had each trial that was in there listed. And, you know, I knew it was there and I knew that this was something happening at our organization, but, you know, I wasn't really actively involved until the last few years. My responsibilities at the hospital included supervising um, our oncology pharmacy and other parts of our operations and clinical services for, for a couple of years. And then I more recently transitioned into a role doing formulary management and other medication use responsibilities of the organization. 
shortly after I moved into that role, Spinraza was approved. And, and as part of that, I really was actively involved with our neuromuscular team in rolling out Spinraza or New Sinerson across the organization and uh, developed relationships with that team as well. I, th- I think that the, the relationships are really the key thing here. And so the relationships I had with our oncology team, the relationships I had with our neuromuscular team, um, with our neurology team have helped me to become involved with these, you know, and as we prepare for commercialization of these products that our investigational drug team has worked has worked on in many cases since the very first patient was treated with some of these therapies. And so I'm a little bit later to the game, but looking at this relative to commercial product and not, not as much with, you know, the history of, of clinical trials and the future of clinical trials. Mm-hmm. Well, as we conclude our conversation, do you have any parting words of advice for listeners? John? Parting words would be to be ready, because if the, the predictions of rapid market approvals uh, in the coming years becomes true, we may start to stretch the capacity of our of our clean rooms and our pharmacies. For instance, um, imagine you have multiple patients in the clinic for products that require biosafety level two preparation precautions and only one dedicated space for this type of preparation. Think now about how you might manage that. Good point. Mike, what would you add? So, I mean, I think one thing is um, that I can't underscore the importance of relationships and collaboration. These therapies will require um, many different players to be at the at the table, and so I think it's really important to um, prepare early and often um, with uh, folks both in the clinical setting, um, in the pharmacy, and then also working in our infusion clinic and in, with our finance team and others who really have a, um, a relevant stake in, in these discussions. Um, I think the other thing is, um, you know, I think gene therapy is it, it's very new to many people, and I think. While we certainly need to be cognizant of all the precautions that you should take, um, I would say don't be too afraid of gene therapy. If you are doing oncology at your institution, you're probably already dealing with markedly more toxic um, drugs within your organization. And so I think the real key is here is learning how to manage it and, and moving forward. And so don't be paralyzed by any type of fear related to um, gene therapy just, be, just because of the novelty. Very good. Well, uh, John and Mike, uh, thank you very much for having this conversation with me. Very interesting points. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Bill. Yeah, thanks, Bill. That concludes this Engaging the Experts interview. For other educational resources on this topic, including live and on-demand continuing education activities, visit www.ashpadvantagemedia.com forward slash gene therapy.